because I'm a shorty. <laughs> Better? I think so, right? Yeah, are you comfortable? Because I felt like I was reaching a little. Are you comfortable? Yeah, I am. Look how, yeah. like, I set mine up so I can do, I can do this action. You're such a pro. I am You're a microphone <laughs> pro. Has anybody here been to a live recording of a podcast before? Has anybody listened to a podcast before? <laughs> yeah? Yeah? <laughs> Has anybody listened to this podcast before? Cool. Cool. Right? My spouse has listened. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, this podcast is called The Subtext, and it's presented by American Theatre Magazine, which is a program of Theatre Communications Group. Those are some of the words I'm required to say before <laughs> every single episode. Uh, I've been doing this monthly since January of 2018 with American Theatre. So if you are into uh, me, the sound of my voice, talking to cool playwrights, uh, some of whom are sitting here in the audience, and some future episodes are sitting here in the audience as well. Um, and there's a future one sitting here right now. Uh, you can find this wherever you find all the other podcasts you listen to. Uh, just search for the subtext, or you can go to americantheater.org and you can find the entire archive going back to 2018. And in that archive, you will find uh, some luminaries of Chicago playwriting, such as Kristin Udashak, who I love, uh, Isaac Gomez, uh, Ike Holter, uh, Carlos Murillo, many, many Chicago playwrights who are just fantastic. And not just Chicago playwrights, but playwrights from all over the country. Um, Paula Vogel, Lynn Nottage, um, Wallace Shawn. If you didn't know Wallace Shawn was a playwright, um, I understand why. And he talks about uh, how that drives him nuts. <laughs> um, so you can find all of those at americantheater.org. And you can find this episode that we are in the midst of recording right now at American Theater. Maybe tomorrow? <laughs> I'm not sure how late tonight's going to be for me. Uh, but it could come out this week. It's the podcast world. This might come out this week. This might come out in November. <laughs> so, that would be fast. So we the tried before. <laughs> we've been trying for four years, right? And the pandemic got in the way. That's true. So uh, to my left is Nancy Garcia Loja. Who, Loza. Loza, I'm sorry. God, <laughs> first mistake. Hopefully last. Uh, and Nancy and I have known each other since 2018, mm -hmm. I believe. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the first time I ever mentioned inviting her on to this podcast. And here we are five years later. It finally happened. Yeah. Some things have happened in between. Yeah, I made a whole human. Right. <laughs> so, so I already know how late my night's going to go. You know, like <laughs> 9 30 p.m. at best, <laughs> and I'll be snoozing and cuddling with a baby that just turned one year old. Uh, yeah. I always preface that, you know, so many of us, like, it's like you didn't see each other, and now we're starting to see each other again, right. sort of post-pandemic, or wherever we really are in that. Um, and I always just start off by being like, I cooked a human. That's, <laughs> that's what I've been up to. That's why you haven't heard from me. But in addition to that, still have been writing and also figuring out what that means now, too. 
uh, in terms of how the day breaks down and the new mom and all of that. Cool. Well, we'll get into some of that probably. Um, <laughs> Before I fall asleep. Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> nah, you've just got kidding, some cold guys. I'm very there. caffeinated. Thank you, the understudy. <laughs> right. I'm obligated to mention. <laughs> right. So no, I'm not. I love that. A couple other things before. Uh, you may have already noticed that this is a very casual uh, <laughs> experience. I am a very casual person, and this is a casual podcast. Um, we're just sort of going to like sneakily get started, and you may not even notice. But before <laughs> that happens, I do want to say, we, for those listening and not here in person, we are at the Understudy Coffee and Books on the north side of Chicago in the, neighbor, in the Andersonville neighborhood. It's an amazing drama bookshop and coffee shop. Come to Chicago. If you come to Chicago, come here. Buy all of your uh, drama books. Uh, get all of your coffee. If you live in Chicago and you haven't visited yet, uh, you're in for a treat, so come here. Thank you to Adam and Danny for allowing this to happen. Uh, the first time I came to this store, or actually the first time I heard about this store was when my great friend, the playwright Christine Dudashok emailed me uh, or texted me a link saying, this store is happening, you should do a subtext there. You may not, <laughs> she may not even remember this, but uh, this is before the store even happened. The idea was planted in my head to, to come here. So I came here when uh, the store had a soft opening a few months ago, and uh, I was blown away. This place is amazing. I love it, and I'm so happy that here we are on August 21st, and we're finally we're doing it. And then we're finally, you and I, having this conversation that's been years in the making. Overdue. Way also, overdue. we were wearing such different hats back then. I believe we met at an NNPN conference. I was doing producing stuff at the time, and I knew, like, while I had been very lucky to receive that residency, I it's like one of those things that when you get it and it's yours, you were like, I'll, I'm done with this. I'll actually never do this again. Um, it, because it had been years of like volunteering in theater to learn it. I'm a self-taught um, theater maker, uh, self-taught writer as well. I was never a little kid in a play in school. I was never a kid in an audience in, in a high school. Um, I'm a Mexican daughter. I'm the eldest. I'm one of seven. So that means my parents said no to everything because I'm also <laughs> first born here. So they were terrified about what their pocha daughter would grow up to become. And they just knew that if you were on stage, that probably meant that's a bad thing. <laughs> so I became a writer, and they're horrified. <laughs> but yeah, that was like, it feels like a lifetime ago, right? Like 2018, it was like I was running a festival for other writers with 16th Street out in Berwyn. Um, and I love that. I love being around playwrights. So when Brian, fellow writer, also was like, Nancy, come chat with me and I'm recording it I was like I don't care let's let, let's talk let's bullshit I love bullshitting I with writers No and I was at yeah. that I was at that same conference with <laughs> not wearing the playwright hat either and uh, I was there to do this I was there uh, the American Theater magazine mm -hmm. sent me there to interview a bunch of playwrights and I had a really hard time being there mm -hmm. because I was so like riddled with jealousy <laughs> like all I wanted was to be there as a playwright like yeah. showcasing my work and instead I, they gave me journalist credentials <laughs> and I was like oh this isn't who I am like did you like you were you were there as a producer right as a producer mm, and it's again like for me I saw my first play as an adult I saw a play at Aguijon out in Belmont Cragen uh, diversity and Laramie 
It was a, I love my entrance into theater because it could not have ha happened in a more welcoming space. So Aguijon is a theater run by a Colombian mom and daughter. They're fierce as hell. So the first play I ever saw was in Spanish. Um, the first storytellers in my life told me stories in Spanish. So I think it was meant to be that it, that exposure happened that way. I was a whole 28 years old when I saw a play for the first time. I knew then, I was like, I don't know what that is, and I know nothing about it, but I know I want to do it. So I started making like a little Kill Bill hit list and just, <laughs> and just was like, I don't know what the medium will be, but I want to start just sharing stories and memories and start from there. And so I applied to Play Lab with what used to be Teatro Luna here in Chicago. This is post Coyapases and Tania Saracho's tenure. They had already moved on into different facets. And I started volunteering with them at the same time that I got into a Play Lab with the goal of writing like my first 10 pages. I think it was like they gave you, I think they gave you like nine months to write 10 pages. And really it was like read these six plays, right? I think I was still a terrible student. And so I think I somewhat read four of the plays, but I reread the Maria Irene Fornes play over and over again. And this is, I mean, this is gonna sound so terrible. And then a bunch of the plays I found out if they were already made, like the Tennessee Williams stuff. And then I was like, oh, well, I mean, yes, I want me some Paul Newman. Oh my God, I want me some Elizabeth Taylor too. So then I just like dug into those plays in that way and that medium that was really comfortable for me. Um, and I, that's where it kind of began. And I stopped writing. After that, like the first time I volunteered in theater, I was really met with how much I didn't know at all, like all the technical language, right? So like now I know, yes, your audience, I knew that word, right? <laughs> I've been to a movie, but I had no idea even, I remember like the first time they like, someone in the back who was really good with logistics, later I learned they're a stage manager. <laughs> and they told me go tell, something about the house, the house, and I legit thought they were talking about a house that needed to be on the stage. And there, <laughs> so there I was at 28, learning all the embarrassing technical lessons and the language, right? That's like not, it's not second nature. I didn't grow up hearing about it. Um, and I was learning how plays were made. So it's like very much like a Chicago girl. I think like I learned how to work in it first. How do you make the sausage before? It took me years, five years later to say, no, you didn't get into this to find out how people make the sausage. And you didn't get into this to come up with eight different sausages and package them and make sure they're on shelves everywhere. Like, and by that I mean like nurturing and supporting other writers and uh, I had started with a very good friend of mine, a former subtext interviewee, Isaac Gomez, whom I love. Mm -hmm. um, I had started a writing group with them as well in 2015 with one goal. We were doing a bunch of other jobs, right? They were doing literary and new works development at Victory Gardens, and I was more and more doing marketing and producing of plays and, and having other people's babies, really. That's, that's sort of what that work is, but doing it with a lot of love and a lot of uh, dedication and determination um, to get undertold stories out there and see how I could be a channel to, to help in that way. And, and along the way, selfishly also learn everything I didn't know about this crazy world I was getting into and this crazy family that I wanted to belong in. And I don't know why, because I'm one of seven children. So like, I wanted to run from one big, crazy, messy family right into another. Um, but we started a writing group, a Latinx playwright circle, um, out, it called El Semillero, out of Victory Gardens Theater. That was about 2015. 
Um, and we were like, we have to do this. We have to make this table and create the space to hold ourselves accountable that no matter if we're good at other things and we're given, as you said, the badges of access into other roles, jobs, to wear these suits and these other things, we have to remember that the only reason we got into this was to write and to tell stories. And I'm very, very grateful. I, I call myself a self-taught writer, but I'm very grateful that Semillero was a place that I can convene with eight other Latinx writers who we, we shared at least some common places and puntos of cruzada as, um, as just Latina people with shared experience here in our different parts of the country, right? All of us came from everywhere and we all had uh, a breadth of experience and, and varying levels, right? And where we were in our tracks with writing and with theater making. And I feel like that's where I learned. And I learned just by every two weeks, show up with 10 pages, whatever they were. And your job was to show up with it. It never had to be perfect. It could be messy as hell, but you lesson one, show up. Show up for yourself, show up for your writing and bring your pages and then shred them with each other, <laughs> you know? And that's where it's just, that's where I learned it was very led by the intuition and the feeling, the sensation of a thing is really what's, what has been my North Star as a supposedly self-taught writer. Right, when you mentioned, you mentioned earlier that finding inspiration when you first read Fornaz and, and well, I'm not sure if you would call it inspiration when you were reading uh, Tennessee Williams, um, uh, what do you remember what it was do you remember what was like striking you absolutely uh, yeah i mean you're asking me and i'm already like oh my god yeah. i'm gonna hit the mic because no it, i wouldn't call it anything else except bubbling electric magnetic it's a you it pulls you so like with tennessee williams again i'm gonna yes i did not read the play because i saw the movie and ruined myself but <laughs> there was some what i realized and i realized in retrospect is that i loved dialogue and the things people who were tr who were some of their actions were repressed and boxed in. I was loving what people did with dialogue and language. I don't think that's a coincidence. I'm the eldest daughter of immigrants. My parents come from a very Catholic conservative town, a village in a valley. It's like sits there like a pueblo saying, drink me, where like women are given very strict rules. But I grew up around women where I was constantly watching them bubble, boil, and erupt. So the dialogue, and the way people cut each other down and built each other back up was fascinating to me and recognizable. I knew my people were gonna sing different and they sounded different, but something about that, just I think like that explosive chemistry that's happening and the way people are trying to viciously get what they thirstily need, I knew what that was and I wanted to do something with it, but my way. Had you had any relationship to thinking in terms of like dialogue and creation earlier in your life? This is where I'm gonna tell you a story about when I tried to be a director, when I had never seen a play. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how this happened, but somewhere in a basement in Argo Summit, a industrial last town, it's like a pinky finger of Chicago, Cook County's, Cook County uh, perimeter, uh, CPS schools, they didn't know what to do with me as a sixth grader, so they threw me in a library for an entire year. So for a whole year as a sixth grader, I didn't have English class. But somewhere in there, uh, I decided that I was gonna put on 
a show. And the show was gonna happen in our World War II bungalow home in a very, very humid basement. And I recruited all the kids in our block slash barrio to come in and do this show. And I would write out things for them to read. That experiment lasted one afternoon and it ended with me yelling at all of them and telling them they were doing it wrong. And I kicked them all out of my basement. <laughs> We made up and played soccer the next day. <laughs> and I also quit forever as a director. <laughs> and I've been blessed uh, to work with uh, directors like Laura Alcala Baker and most recently Sandra Marquez as well, who uh, are very, very talented in that entire arena and toolbox in a way that I was uh, not born. <laughs> I, love that your, I love that your go-to was, I want to put on a show, right? Mm -hmm. So you're in sixth grade, that's like 11, 12 years old and your instinct was a show. What, like, what was a show to you? For somebody who hadn't been ex exposed to, to theater, like, what was a show to you? What, what were you I, taking in at that time? God, I'm just, I just feel myself like out of my seats right now. I'm just like, no, I know what it was. <laughs> it was an opportunity to say whatever, whatever I wanted. And I needed that a lot. I was a daughter who her father said no to everything. Do you, can I play outside? No. Can I, can I play with the boys on the block? No. Can I take a dance class at school? Because by some accident, one of the after school pro programs brought a dance program to our school and it was even offered to us. No, you can't dance. Girls that dance go bad. When I get older, can I drive? No. Um, of course I met my father on plenty of occasions with a disobedience but there was always an edge of consequence uh, in the house that I grew up in. And so consequences kept me pretty tethered to how I wanted to negotiate punishment, how good, how good and worth it was a freedom, an act of disobedience in the face of um, punishment, which it's no secret, right? If you ever saw my play at New Stages Rust, you know, corporal punishment was a thing, or as we say, and euphemize it all the time, my pops was old school, but then he wasn't, because I'm one of seven children, so halfway, halfway into fathering, my dad decided I'll never hit my kids again. <laughs> And so three of us are like, this was our dad, and the other four of us are like, who are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, I, when I said I wanted to put on a show, I just wanted, I needed, to ex I needed a space to explode. I needed a, a space to be a bit of a tyrant. Um, and without being, I guess, hyperbolic, like I really just needed a space to, to express myself because I wasn't, I wasn't surrounded with open opportunity to do that. Um, I've always felt that any opportunities for expression that I've had, I've clawed for them. Mm. Mm. So you said you're one of seven mm. sibs. Are any of them uh, creatives? They're all very creative. So my oldest brother, wonderful illustrator, engineering mind, gets into MIT. My family doesn't know what that is. So we just never return the application and he doesn't go to that school. He ends up as a lot of first born, first generation, first gen college kids. 
uh, ends up, I think, like myself, it takes him, I think, eight to 10 years to get a bachelor's. Same for myself. It took us, you know, it took us a really long time to do that. We'd be working either part-time or full-time during those years as well. And my older brother and I, we also co-parented our younger siblings. So there was a lot of responsibility and ob obligation tied up in that. I have two brothers who are really, really great at making all things, uh, literally. Do you have a problem? They can fix it. They're welders. They're, they, one of them goes in and makes sure all our lights turn on because they're in charge of all kinds of contracts at nuclear plants. Um, and then he just makes all kinds of shit at his house right now. So to me, and like my definition of creative is like I'm surrounded by family members that may wanna make things with their hands all the time. Um, my, let's see, I can't forget any of my siblings because like I cannot hurt any feelings. <laughs> so my, I my, set you up, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I mean even like one of my brothers who's, this is a very Chicago thing, he's 597 pipe fitter. I have two brothers who are in that union. Um, one of them, like, yes, that's what he does, you know, from 5 a.m. to 3 p.m. And then uh, two years ago, he decides to weld all the copper floral arrangements for his wedding. You know, so it's stuff like that. And mm -hmm. just, just right now, bought a historic home and is doing, is married to a painter and they're doing all that stuff together. My baby brother uh, is taking leather making goods classes and he's making, I, he has a nine to five and he's also out there being like, I wanna learn how to make swords and knives and I'm making leather purses and these are the gifts we're receiving from him because he's making, he has this curiosity, wants to make things with his hands, remodels old classic cars. We're like a big Chevy GMC family. You know, they, they um, were not happy when I showed up with a Corolla <laughs> as, my, as my first car. <laughs> They were like, we raised you better than this. Remember your Chevy Blazer that looked like a spaceship? <laughs> you know better than this. Um, and then my baby siblings. I mean, one is a big scientific mind, but I don't think anyone makes me laugh harder than her. Uh, she is the first doctor in our family. So I would say that, yeah, she had to have a tremendous imagination to do something that had never, ever, in all generations of my family, ever been achieved, period. Mm -hmm. There are no doctors in my family on my mother or my father's side. And um, I can, even if I trace lineage back five generations, I can't name a doctor. My sister interrupted that. So I would say that she's incredibly creative to do what hasn't been done before, mm -hmm. ever. Um, and my baby sibling, uh, Josimar. Uh, Josimar sees my plays before anyone, anyone. Every page, everything. It, they, they, they know that if they tell me they're broke, they, they better be ready to read a play because I will incentivize them <laughs> by being like, here's, here's 20 an hour, here's 50 bucks, here's a train ride, uh, please read this, give me the first impressions. Um, and it's, they, they just, they know the world. And I, I, I very fervently believe that they're, there, there's a writer and there's a creative in there. I think they're more comfortable right now occasionally calling themselves a dramaturg. Mm -hmm. And I know that every room that I've been in with other writers, they've always been tapped. Do you want to? <laughs> and I've been very lucky that they are always like, I only do this for Nancy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and hopefully that won't stay that way because they're a gift. Mm -hmm. And I'm very excited to see where they're going to go. Mm -hmm. Do uh, Does your family interact with your work at all? Like, do they talk about it? Do they come see it? They do. Um, so <laughs> like like all writers who had the first 10 minute plays, uh, I was, 
that was ferocious that they had to attend and probably reminded them of every single birthday party, school registration, lunch form, college application, FAFSA, quinceañera, and anything I was ever responsible for organizing, planning, or paying for them. And so there they were at their eldest sister's 10-minute play reading. <laughs> So they have they have interacted. My family they show up for me they, and they show they roll deep, right? So it's like one of seven. They'll bring their partners. Um, now there's this next generation of my family too. We, there's six children that are between the age of one. My baby's the the youngest right now, and up to the age of eight. Um, my niece has already asked me, well, can't you write a play for me for my school? And I, I think I want to be the lead. And, and she already knows these words because she's being exposed to it. And I was like, well, you need to talk to whoever's in charge of development over there because I do something called commissions. <laughs> and, 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 and I'm like, so, you know, get back to me. <laughs> but it's they're engaging with it. I mean, I had I think one of the magical moments I want to like really zero in on one. Um, I think there's two. I'm gonna start with a joyful one. So in 2018, Jeremy McCarter of um, he had co-authored the the book on the process of Hamilton. Had was now based in Chicago, raising a family, and had started a company called Make Believe Association, which also does. Um, audio dramas, really, really great work, and really pulled in like Nate Marshall and a lot of other really great uh, Chicago talent to just write to write some stories. The first season was about writing folk tales, and so he had approached me to adapt a, a, a tale that had been sort of recovered in like one of those big encyclopedia-sized dusty books from Ayutla Jalisco, and he's like, when he met with me, I. I, I was a bit intimidated, and so off the bat, I kid you not, I put the names of eight writers in front of him, not even realizing I was at my own meeting. Uh, very generously, he smiled, and he waited for me to realize it. And there was no condescension mm -hmm. in it. He was caught, I mean, these are New Yorkers, right, who came to Chicago, so I think it, it caught him by surprise to see how ready I was to say no to myself at my own meeting, to not even put my name in the hat. Um, and he's like, well, Nancy, he's like, I saw that well, you identify as being a Chicago and Jalisco writer, and this tale is from Jalisco, and it, like, it just like was hanging there. And then I just said, you're right, that's mine. Uh, oh, so I, again, that moment, right, you want to wear a different hat for a second, and then you're just like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm done with that hat. That's mine. I love that so much uh, because I find myself having many conversations with, uh, artistic folks, dramaturgs, literary managers, gatekeepers, and what I end up talking about are all the playwrights I talk to on this, mm -hmm. rather than my work as a playwright. Yeah. And uh, and so hearing that somebody saw you <laughs> in that moment where that same thing was happening is kind of inspiring to me. Yeah, and but it's I mean we love writers, right? Like it's I love writers. I do. Like I don't I don't organize acting workshops. Like I just have this beautiful grant right now with the Joyce Award with the Joyce via the Joyce Foundation and the National Museum of Mexican Art. And they said, What do you want to do in the community? And I right away I was like, I want to do a playwriting workshop. That's exactly what I want to do. Um, because these magical things have happened for me and in community every time playwrights who have never met each other walk into a room and say, I have five pages. Mm. Special things have always happened, and I, and I sincerely mean this. I don't think I've ever thrown away any of the writing that has come out of showing up to a room expecting nothing and just letting the thing 
that might happen there happen. So I, I, I love playwrights. I don't think it was an accident that I, you know, I think, it, yeah, deep, you know, deep therapy <laughs> years <laughs> in. Yeah, I was afraid, and so I put other names in the pot. But um, to sort of tag in, like, the joyful thing that had happened is when that play was fully produced and out there, my, my entire family showed up to see that, like, cousins, aunts, uncles, everybody, right? I had an uncle that showed up in a full mariachi outfit. Um, and my, the children in my family could not hear it. Some of them were really, really little at the time. But uh, my niece did get to hear it. And in the talk back, she recognized her mother's voice. Mm. And she shouted in the kitchen. She said, that's my mom! And, that's the, and I think that's the beauty of that. That's their forever. That's an audio drama. They can, she can go visit that again. She could be so proud that her, at the words that her mom is saying. And now, I mean, she's even like engaging with like, what was that opinion? What was that comment? Do I still love the dragon? <laughs> you know, like it's, it's it, just discovering that I wrote something that was making the, at the time, the four-year-old smile and cry the same as literally the person who told me I could do, I wasn't allowed to do anything. They were having the same ripped open reactions. My father, this, this very <laughs> super macho who was on his journey, right? Because they're not static. Like, I feel like that's one of the weird things. We say these words like, if you hear the word Mexican macho, you think that's a static thing, and I'm <laughs> I hate to burst your bubble. No, it's not. It's so messy and it's so complicated. My dad's the kind of person that turns around and tells his grandkids now, sit down, let's talk about your feelings. And of course, my <laughs> like I hear that and I'm like, oh my god, I want to put my boot up your ass right now. And then I'm almost like, God, I'm so great. He's changed. <laughs> um, but it's, I, I mean, that was powerful to discover. It's like I, I wrote something with song and a lyricism, and I was obsessed with its sound. There's a, a, a part of that audio drama that I was obsessed with it sounding exactly like a specific street at a specific time of day in my town in San Juan de los Lagos, Los Altos, Jalisco. And I remember the moment when my mom turned around in the middle of the podcast because my family was on their best behavior. They were super on time because I lied. <laughs> and I told them it was half an hour earlier. <laughs> <laughs> and they were also super quiet during the audio drama. And I remember my mom turning around. And when that, that scene happened and we could, you could feel yourself, if you recognize this town, you're transported to that street. And my mom turned around and winked at me and gave me a thumbs up. Yeah, oh, I, I cried. <laughs> I, I was there at the recording yeah. of this podcast. And I have to say, it's, it was one of the most creatively inspiring things I ever experienced. It was Thank you, Brian. like I sat there uh, and I can't even, I can barely describe it, but it was like a full production with a live band, multiple actors. There were so mm. many people in this space creating this play and it sounded amazing. Mm. It was, it was, it was just gorgeous. And I was like wide eyed for the entire, I don't even know how long, two hours we were there. And mm. I walked out of there and I wa like I was like, I want to do that. Yeah. Like it was it was yeah. really what's that called again? The uh, the audio drama is called Brava, uh Folktale con Musica, uh B R A V A, and it's uh, through Make Believe Association. Right. That so has a really excellent first and second season. And once you click play, please yeah. do do visit and sit with the other stories. It, they're really special. Yeah, yeah. Highly, highly recommend. 
Um, yeah, so I was like un- incredibly inspired, unbelievably jealous, which is sort of like a through line for me in every stop I make along the way. It's like a little little dollop of jealousy is right there. That's the fire, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> but it's yeah. Yeah, but it goes back to what we were talking about before about having multiple hats and being in spaces where mm-hmm. we're like, oh, I'm doing this here, but I wish I could be doing something else, right? I mean, I, I, it's on my drive here. I, dr- I live in Irving Park area right now, and I drove by, um, I drove by the viaduct to take my right turn and start heading east on Irving Park Road, and I'm not kidding you. My evening babysitter, so that I'm here tonight, walked by with a stroller with my very happy son. <laughs> and I legit was just like, I'm a mix of, I want to be in two places at once. <laughs> what am I doing with my life right now? <laughs> so there's still like a bit of like, am I wearing the right hat? And in a way that like motherhood has really put that to the test sometimes because it's, you just, that's it. That's a whole ass person. That's a human being who is awesome and they're discovering the world and like watching someone else's discovery is, I, I don't care how many, you know, of course it didn't happen to me first. Of course he isn't the most special human ever born, but he is to me. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I don't want to miss it. And and at the same time, like, this work is really, really important to me. And even when I have those, like, hard crossroads, mm-hmm. like, am I doing the wrong thing? Is this worth it? You know, then I really fucked myself because I saw that documentary about uh, Paul Newman mm-hmm. and uh, Joanne Woodward, and it was like the anecdote in there is like that he says he lives with so much regret over missing everything with the kids, and she's like, I have no regret. <laughs> I was like, Well, I want to be the no regret person. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think, like all jokes aside, like I think, um, you know, it's a, I've been reflecting a lot as my son turns one. And I just, I'm like, okay, let's stop fucking around. I'm both of these things. I'm this kid's mom, mm-hmm. right? And I am, I am a playwright. And I can't be one without the other. And they ha- it has to work. I'm going to make it work. You said, you said earlier about how when you were 28, you discovered these plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it took you five years, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. to, to start writing. So uh, I'm going to, I did say that, but the little correction on that is it took me five years to start writing plays. Um, I got into the play lab and I think like, I don't think I ever wrote dialogue in that first year. So that would have been 2011. I never wrote any dialogue at all. I just kept reading the plays and like really like engaging with them in a really, as if the writer was in front of me, right? Like it Mm -hmm. just felt, it really opened something up and unlocked something in me and I like wanted to argue with the plays and be excited about the plays and I was the nerd that always wanted to raise their hand, right? And so that was very alive for me. Um, But what I did do was there was a, a group that, I'd be very remiss not to mention them because it's, been so important in like my formation in this. Um, Contratiempo is a Spanish literary magazine out in Pilsen. And I remember when I was at DePaul as a student in Latino studies and Spanish that they would, that a lot of the professors I realized 10 years later were all forming that literary magazine. And they were all writing for it and they were all engaging with all of their countries of origin in this thing that was just really, really special and bubbling in Chicago. And so they had a writing group that met. They said they'd call it la di- en la 18 la una, 
And so every, I believe every Sunday at one, they would meet for three to four hours. They didn't care if it was the Super Bowl. That's the first time I attended. <laughs> and um, they would do nothing but share pages and render rapid fire feedback. No learning, right? It was like cutthroat feedback. And I asked in, in this sort of limbo of not knowing how I wanted to tell stories, I found out about this group. And so I messaged them and I asked them, hey, I've never written anything. Can I show up and bring something? And they said, adelante, all you've got to do is write it in Spanish. Mm. And I was like, I'm bilingual, I can do that. And so I showed up with like, this is, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to not go on a tangent, I'm gonna try to stay on the through <laughs> line here, but this is why it's very special to me. Like, I wrote a little piece that 10 years later, that, li that little short story about my father hiding gun parts on a Chevy Suburban in 1989 and dropping them in all compartments of this Suburban so that we go back to Mexico, that little excerpt, one, it arrested the room they were not expecting. So I got to experience that thing that we're always jealous when it happens with other plays and playwrights, which is that it sounded like the air left the room. And when the air didn't leave the room, the room was full of laughter because they were very surprised about how I captured how people in my family speak, right? Which I wasn't trying at it. I was just, I guess the best way, I was just being like straight up about it. Like, this is how it sounds. This is. Well, how else can it be? This is what it is, right? And so I just captured this in this little short story. It wasn't a play. I didn't care about form because I have no, I'm not, I don't come from a trained discipline or a conservatory, right? So I was like, I can't give a shit about that. I just either do it or don't do it. And I know that I sound like I have a bit of a reverence and maybe I do, but believe me, like I'm also a person that like, I sit there with the, the I sit there with pages and I cry at a Paula Vogel play. I, I am also that person. Right, But then, what I needed, I did need that irreverence. I needed to not care if I had permission to be in that room. I needed to not care about things like craft, form, structure, because I needed to get into that room the same way my father got into this country, without permission. So they had a strong reaction to that piece. And 10 years later, the play I am developing right now with the Joyce Award starts from, I, I forgot, and recently, in digging up all the little things you save from your writing that were related to this project, I couldn't believe that I was holding 2011 pages from when I went to Contratiempo and brought in a short story. And what I am writing for the Joyce Award is a brand new play. It's a road trip play. It's about the return migration. It's about what happened after the 86 immigration reform when all the Chicago Mexicans, their parents looked at them and said, we're going home for Christmas. And we were like, this is home. And they're like, shut up. No, it's not. You don't even know yet. You know. And so that's, that's what that project's going to be. So it's like, it's like an accident, right? Like I had to walk into certain rooms, but it took me a really, really long time to be like, I'm a playwright. Mm. It didn't. It doesn't sound to me. So tell me if I'm wrong. That you ever struggled to figure out what you wanted to write about, though. No, that's dead on. Yeah, that's dead on. Like I, I, I have 
another funny anecdote, um, at least to me. I remember one time being in New York, sitting in a lobby, and I was there, you know, having a really healthy breakfast of like croissants and <laughs> and coffee with all the milk and all the sugar and all the foam. And then I remember that there were two. There, I recognized it right away. There were writers. There were two writers next to me in the lobby, and they were completely stuck. The coffee was cold, no, no bites were being taken of food, they were hella stressed, staring at each other, and they just kept being like, but what happens next now that they're on the island? And I'm not kidding you, like, I, I hadn't done shit. And I remember I laughed and I said I would never have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> and I should have whatever job they have. <laughs> yeah, how do you get them off the island, though? I think I saw a TV show about this. They invented a time machine or something? Yeah, I, I, I didn't even <laughs> stick around. <laughs> so uh, do you remember what it was that had you realizing that you are actually a playwright? Uh, knowing that I'm responsible for keeping a lot of memory in all directions, generationally, in my family. Accepting that by no accident and perhaps by something bigger than myself, people call it different things, calling purpose. Was I born to do this thing? I don't know why, since I, I don't know why I hold memory since I was three years old. And vividly, I don't know why since I was three years old, people that were 95 were telling me very detailed, long stories about their lives. Somewhere along the way, I think, especially during the pandemic, when I was sitting in a lot of solitude and a lot of grief over plays and momentum that got squashed, plays canceled. I had five world premieres canceled swiftly during the pandemic. A lot of those projects, understandably, they didn't get calendared again, right? Everyone was struggling to like come back up. Um, and so as I was sitting in this solitude and in this grief, somewhere the light for me really was Nancy, you're carrying all of this for a reason. And rather than sit here and wonder, who would I be if I wasn't responsible for carrying all of these memories? Just be, just be the thing you are. I'm carrying them for a reason. I am very, very determined that they don't get lost. So I come from a very strong oral tradition. The people in my family are creative way beyond my siblings. Like, my parents are very creative people. They make a thousand kinds of different things with their hands. The storytellers in my family, they, they were cutting their teeth in the fields, just learning how, how do you pass the pain and the heat of working in fields for sometimes more than 16 hour days. I mean, these are like people that were also, they, they became self-taught songwriters, self-taught singers, self-taught storytellers, right? Like, so this is, I come from this and it's, if. I don't think it's an accident that there is partial illiteracy. It, it, uh, illiteracy didn't get interrupted until my parents' generation and my family. I hold no shame for that. There are beautiful story weavers in my family. And I know that if someone forgets a detail or the person holding the story leaves us or they part with us too soon before you find the story out all the way, things get lost. And so as we're sitting here surrounded by text that's here forever, audio that's here forever, films that you can always visit and be transported with, I think 
this is very important for me to do. I, nothing is more important to me than wrestling, revisiting what I call a very active memory. I don't visit memories to have nostalgic conversations. When I meet them nostalgically, I interrogate that, I question it. I don't try to be sentimental in my work. I try to be frank. Why? Because I, I mean, even culturally, I come from a conservative town, so there's gonna be all kinds of awful things that happened under that 500-year-old basilica that shed blood all over this land of agave fields and farms owned by, I think, like two families for hundreds of years. There's so much pain underneath of all that. And so like, I know what the joy looks like above that. I know what music and lyricism looks like above that, right? But I think it's my responsibility to also approach these things in a very frank and como al grano and like al crudo, like the rawness is something I'm very interested in in memory because everyone's gonna get a eulogy. Catholics are always gonna gloss things over, right? I can say that because I grew up in that. And so I don't have to give people more honey. We know what honey tastes like. I have to do something different with memory, which is have a confrontation with it. Como agarrarme un poco por los cuernos con memory, like a good tourist. So, so do you characterize this as a responsibility? Like you feel responsible to, to be creating these plays? I feel the responsibility to immortalize people I fervently, fervently love and owe everything to. And when I don't feel that responsibility, I also have like the deep privilege and the profound joy of walking into rooms to play. So I don't walk into the, I don't walk into rehearsal being like, this is my responsibility. I have those moments when I'm writing the plays. I need that well to get me out of, why the fuck am I writing this play? I write this, I hate this play right now, right? When you, uh, you guys know it if you're right, like you love it, then you hate it again, then you think you might, oh, maybe I like you a little, like, you know, maybe we can make it work out. And then you love it again. And so like, if I didn't have this well of being like, this, this is also responsibility. Like you, I mean, we hear this a lot now and, 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 I, and I mean it, I think it's true. It's like, I do think it's like, I think people before me are there pushing, pushing the people that didn't get to learn how to read and write because they grew up on farms during the wartime. The people that didn't get to express themselves at all because they were growing up as women in Jalisco. The people that in my family that didn't get to express themselves at all because they were four generations working on haciendas, right? So like I have, I think it's, if I have the mic, it's, yeah, there is a responsibility. Mm. So going back to the question I asked earlier about your family interacting with your, with your work, do, does, does it change the stakes of that when you're creating these plays that are so entwined with mm. memory, shared experiences, to then share those stories with your family? And uh, like, do you? It, it so does. I have, I have plays that can have cost me relationships. Mm. I have something I want to say about this, but there's there's different pain in my family right now that's very 
it's a, they're fresh wounds. And so I, I am also, when I'm not the writer up here, I'm also a person in a family, right? And so I'm the first person that's like, I might say a truth on stage, and then if I walk off the stage or off of this, right, and someone says something bad about my family, I'm the first person that's like, what'd you say? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, I want to wrestle these demons, right? And at the same time, I'm protective over people in my family. But it's, I've lost relationships over um, depictions and plays that people in my family have also felt it's too close to home. I've had people I, that I know, I have characters that I have created that I know are an amalgamation mm. of a dozen, a dozen people. And I have people that are, have been deeply hurt by characters that I have put up on stage who they felt were misrepresented, too close to home, too painful to watch, right? And who, uh, relationships that, I mean, people I consider near siblings, that they, it, it's, it, the relationship is sitting in pain mm -hmm. right now, pain and silence. Um, I have plays that I also have to be, I've learned lessons after my first world premiere um, at Paramount with Bull. Uh, that play is called Bull, the Love Story. The, what I'm speaking to right now happened to me during that play. And so by the time I had, I was doing a very, very autobiographical play called Rust at New Stages at Goodman. By then I, I was like, here's the thing. I didn't claw my way into this to edit myself for who's in the audience. And I'm also not trying to re-traumatize my family and intentionally injure them. And I'm not trying to write these plays to be like, ha ha, guess what, I have the knife now, mm. right? It's not about that. What's happening with, the, with my memory work is that that's where, like we go to plays to watch people work things out. We want to watch them work shit out with words and then see what they're doing. I write plays because I'm working shit out. That's why I'm still in memory land. I'm working shit out. How do I pick which memories I'm focused on? It's because I had the transformative moment. The thing, that memory, it became the before, a before and after for me in whatever it was, right? Becoming a bocha, becoming a daughter who's like, <laughs> it, is, <laughs> it is fucking sucks to be a Mexican daughter <laughs> and also I don't wanna be anything else, right? It's like, I have, with Rust, I decided I'm gonna show up to Goodman every day and I'm only writing for the little girl that lived that and for the Mexican daughters in the audience. I want them to bring their Mexican fathers and I want them to talk about a lot more than when they're, what, where are we gonna eat after they see the play? Because I wanna interrupt a silence of non-apology, right? Is I love you an apology is a question I had with that play. I wasn't ready for my parents to see that play and in a quiet understanding, my parents know that my face was on Dearborn and that the, the red line and the purple line and the brown line, I hope I didn't have that up because Chicago's gonna roast me, I know <laughs> that that train was zooming by the famous Chicago L while my mug was on Dearborn. And no, I did not invite my parents to that play because that play, it needs to be it needs to be what it is. It can't protect people. Why are we protecting people more than the realities children live through? Mm. 
why are we protecting like a myth of what a thing is, right? Can you talk about that, the story of Rust? So Rust, what's like, what's the boilerplate? Um, Rust is a play I wrote because wounds need air. Rust follows the story of a little girl based on myself um, on a porch on the streets of Argo Summit who, whose world is interrupted when she realizes that her dad is not God because her grandfather arrives. And when she meets her grandfather, she realizes someone out there out-alphas my father. And that doesn't inspire her to fall under the protective cloak of her grandfather. It inspires her to become her grandfather with tragic consequence. Mm. So I thought I was writing a family drama. I wrote a tragedy. So if your parents come to see this, is, do you mean in the sense that before it is fully produced or in is your preference just to avoid having them interact with this particular piece entirely? I, I'm, I don't know yet how I want them to interact with it when it's fully produced. What I did know is that I wasn't gonna give myself permission to re-traumatize them while I'm workshopping mm. and while I'm still figuring out a play. Mm -hmm. If I'm figuring it out, it's not time. Mm -hmm. Why? Because that's also gonna color the writing. So if I wanna keep it raw, instinctive, and true to me, it's not time yet. Mm -hmm. Who I did invite was my siblings. And on the very, very last day, my eldest brother went. And I thought it was very beautiful. He sat next to me. He showed up earlier than me and on time. And he got us a drink, he put it under my seat, and he told me three rules. I think I can remember two of them because I've been pregnant and I've had a baby. <laughs> so very great with old memories, really bad with new ones. <laughs> um, I'm sure there's science behind that. Um, and he said, I want to see the play. Please don't look at me the whole time I watch the play. He said, please don't ask me questions. He's like, and when it ends, please do not introduce me to anyone and please let me leave. So those were, those were the rules. They could, I thought it was really, really sweet because he doesn't have to tell me that he, might, that he knows he might go through something watching the work. And so sure enough, you know, show ends. Um, he steps out and I, I, you know, it's that really special moment where you are being rushed by people who want to, they're crying, they want to hug me, they want to say what it felt like to them and I, I was like a little girl lost in the store. I was like, where's my brother? <laughs> where's my brother? And he swiftly made his way out of Goodman. And so I uh, said a lot of apologies to folks that were trying to give me a hug, including an agent. I'm very good at shooting off my own legs. <laughs> 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 and I ran out of the Goodman. And um, I saw my brother at the Dearborn sign taking a picture of it. So. Did you talk about it with him? I walked up to him. His look told me the rules are still the rules. <laughs> and we hugged really hard. Then I asked him for a selfie, and he was like, <laughs> and he did it. <laughs> we did the selfie. And then he said, uh, shakily, he said, good job, good job. And we parted. It was that quick. Mm. Yeah. What else do you need to hear, <laughs> right?
right? Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned you mentioned losing five productions during the beginning of the current pandemic, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> forever yeah. ongoing pandemic. Yeah. Uh, I can relate to some extent. Not mm. to. I mean, that's a that's a massive amount of of mm. loss, but. Uh, I can relate to some extent, and, and what I understand is, you know, how hard it is just to create the thing to mm -hmm. share with somebody to then have them judge it, mm -hmm. right? And then to get it into the system and have somebody decide to produce it, mm -hmm. and then have that happen multiple times, then have all of that collapse. Like the the loss you feel as an artist, it's mm -hmm. it's like it stays it stays with you. I'm wondering how you. Um, Perhaps this is why you had a child, right? <laughs> <laughs> but part of, like, uh, you know, we, we, you, you talked about uh, earlier about the, you didn't use the word control, but when you directed that play in sixth grade, control was part, like, you wanted to be in control. You wanted to take control. And as artists, there's so few opportunities for us to have control and in creation of the mm -hmm. piece we're writing that's when we really have control mm -hmm. and once our plays are in the laps of folks and the decision makers and when the you know productions get canceled we start to lose control like mm -hmm. uh i'm 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 not quite sure how to w phrase the question i'm getting to but it's really about the aftermath of that like how did you come back? Like, how are you coming back from that? Like, did that impact your your relationship to your own work? It did because it was it's a reckoning. So I had the five world premieres. Like, one of them was a very specific kind of commission. It was a TYA commission at Teatro Leiden, really special school to work with. It's a predominantly Latine school. They're looking for Latine work. If you are a Latine playwright here or listening. Uh, and you've got TYA plays, get a hold of Death of Leiden. The students are so ready for that work and, and really brilliant. Um, so that's, that was a commission that's for, uh, toward a very specific end, right? And then I had a, di a different commission that was gonna be an adaptation, and I had another, I had uh, one commission for the second season of Make Believe that was gonna be an audio drama, and that one I was like, I wanna capture the sound of Lakeview in a very autobiographical way in a very specific year, which was a specific boxing match that really erupted all kinds of joy and violence between um, the Puerto Rican, Cuban, and Mexican community, which is what, what I related to and grew up in. Um, I grew up in on the weekends, because Monday through Friday was southwest side of Chicago, and then on the weekends, it was spending all the weekends up here with my mom's north side family. Um, and so like all these plays go away Right, and so I, it's, I mean, it was solidly one year of solid, solid depression that just kept spiraling, spiraling and getting worse and worse and worse. And then somewhere, somewhere in there, when I finally just snapped out of it, I was like, when it all goes away, what are you leaving? It all goes away, what did you really want to write? And it kind of crystallized for me. The commissions had to be dictated and controlled by me creatively if they were gonna land in my lap again. The creative teams for any opportunity had to be in my control. If I was going after awards, I wanted to co-author the grants. 
to have complete creative control over deliverables and timelines and creative teams. And if I was going to be writing anything at all, it needed to be the memories of my family. I don't want to write about things. I have plenty of things that I know and I can write from within. I needed to not write at the periphery or write at the edge of a thing, trying to get to it. I needed to start stripping it away and being like, al grano, when you show up to a room and you didn't even have to like get stuck or wonder what am I bringing in today, if you're constantly showing up as a person being like, today I'm wrestling with this kind of a memory, as, an, as a person right now in conversation with things that happen, then I know what I'm supposed to be writing. And so that the kind of commission work that was dictated by either a producing body or an organization or a grant requirement, what I did to take back, I think, control that I needed to, to have and to believe versus I, was I going to continue to tell myself the story of you had a launch with Brava, you had all the momentum, the pandemic happened, and it all crashed down. Uh, Sarah Slonick from Three Arts, I had been nominated for that award two years ago, and I am ever grateful for a feedback conversation that I had with her because jumping on the phone with people who want to give you as much time as possible to say, hey, yes, you didn't get this this year, she said, Nancy, we fully believe and had a lot of, a lot, like we felt your application, and we really wanted to know, and now what do you want to do? It did crash down. So now what? And I was like, now what is an awesome place to be in versus remember me. <laughs> you know, like now what is an active, a live place to be in? So I needed, I needed to take back some of that control. And that is what I've done. I've, I have a beautiful relationship with the National Museum of Mexican Art. We co-author grants. We've gotten the Joyce Award together. We've gotten the National Endowment of the Arts together to ensure the production of my next project. What does that mean? That means that as we go not just from commission of idea to page, now we're gonna go from page to stage. I'm at the table to have the conversations around what that production and that partner, you know, that theater partnership with the museum, how does that look? Um, we also got the APAP grant out of Washington and in New York, which is underscored by Mellon Foundation. And look, I know writing grants, que hueva, right? But part of the thing that I think has been like really beautiful about co-authoring these grants with really, really talented folks at the museum, Jorge Valdivia, Barak Engels, Kirshen, part of the, the, the joy of that too is that like it makes you, <laughs> it makes you really invested. You don't, you don't sit down and write a grant unlike a play. That's where you're fighting for the idea and you're fighting for the play and you do pour more than 40 hours, 100 hours, 120 hours by the time you get the grant. And I am not talking about the creative writing. I'm talking about the writing, the work, and the figuring out how to fight for it, how to speak for it, and how to make it happen. Mm -hmm. So that has been a much more active place because any, I mean, when I was like this, you, I have to take this back for me, right? How do I define it? What is the work I'm gonna make? Because if the pandemic taught us anything, plans are a joke and there's an expiration date. So I don't want to be the I regret person. I want to say when expiration date comes, I did what I, I, did what I needed to do. Mm. Beautiful. 
I don't have a lot of, uh, like we were talking before we came out here about what this will look like, what it will sound <laughs> like. Like I, I told you that I don't have a lot of plans. I don't have a script. I don't have a series of questions. We're going to talk about whatever we talk about. However, there is one question that I have uh, gotten into the habit of asking, and now I feel like I'm remiss when I don't talk about it with mm -hmm. folks. And uh, it's about the idea of what is success and what does success mean to you as an artist? A few sentences on this, if I may. Love your play harder than anyone. If you can sustain that, pat yourself on the back. Successful. We don't write plays so that they just live in workshop, play readings, or text. I did not become a playwright, so I stare at scripts on a laptop. If I wanted that, I should have become a novelist. Anytime my plays are sitting there and getting dusty and they haven't been worked, I'm just like, uh, am I accidentally becoming a novelist? And I love novelists, right? I don't know if playwrights are just people who want to be novelists, but I, do, I don't. I want these plays, I want them to be, I want, <laughs> I do want people to witness these memories. And so success for me looks like people seeing rust and applying to the new residency, and I heard through crickets applying to the residency saying, I would not have applied to this had I not seen rust. I didn't know work like this was possible. Success to me looks like the plays not gathering dust, and the plays actually get to live and breathe and sound how they sound in my head, but then look how amazing, brilliant minds bring it all together on a like a Chicago blueprint, right? Here's my thing, my thing, my thing, right? Because I don't, I mean, people that have worked with me, they know me, my stage directions are pretty much useless unless you want to cry because they end up being pretty poetic. <laughs> I do, I, I'm like, once the designers are in the room, I'm just like, what do y'all want it to be? Because mm -hmm. that's the exciting part. It's I want to learn everything I don't know about my play. So success to me always looks like getting to the next room to make the play excellent, to serve your stories, to get them out there, and to get them out there in their truth, their lyricism, and their pocharrones to as many people as possible. I do want the place to outlive me, and I need the memories to be immortalized. I think you said it all. I think this is where we end. Thank you, Brian. This was really fun. Thank you. I usually, I usually have the luxury of being private in recording <laughs> these, and what happens a lot is, this is there's this little red button right here on my recorder, and as somebody comes to an end of a thought, I just sort of look there, and I, and I pause, and they're like, what is he doing? And I, go, and I, just, and I go, beep. And they're like, was that it? Was, was that was that it? And uh, I don't really say when it comes to when it comes to an end, but you just like when you're writing, you just sort of feel your way to mm -hmm. the end, right? Yeah. Um, I want to say thank you for giving me giving us this time. Thank I'm very much inspired by you and your work. So um, it's a joy to spend any time with you. So thank you. <laughs> thank you, Brian. And likewise, this. Understudy feels like home. I can't say that enough. Thank you. Yes. This was really, really fun. Yes. Thank you. Thank you to the understudy 
like I said at the top, come to this shop, come to this coffee shop, buy books, buy coffee. This is a beautiful place. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Danny, for opening this beautiful spot in Andersonville. Um, I gotta. So let me. I usually script the end credits, but I'm gonna I'm gonna roll them off the top of my head. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I won't have to edit this as much later. Uh, <laughs> I want to thank uh, Rob Weiner Kent, who's the editor-in-chief of American Theatre Magazine. He's the one that has given me permission to continue creating this podcast month after month. He gives me the freedom to speak to whoever I want to speak to and say whatever I want to say, and I'm super appreciative of that. Um, KJ Jarbo is my associate producer who helps me a lot with, with editing. Uh, KJ is an amazing playwright. KJ is also in a band called Box Knife. They're pretty rad. I used their music in the uh, opening of last month's episode, so check it out. Um, the theme song from the, from the subtext is something you can't hear right now. But when you listen back to the recording of this, <laughs> when you subscribe to the subtext, you will hear uh, the song High by International Pen Pal, so thank you to them. And um, thank you so much to all of you for coming out. Uh, I'm hugely appreciative of this, so thank you from the bottom of my heart. Uh, and then I end every episode by sharing a play that's filling me up this month, and it's usually a play that I have read uh, or I have seen in the month since the last episode, but I'm sitting here in a bookstore surrounded by incredible plays, and it feels weird to pick a play, <laughs> to say one amongst all of these. I feel like I will be haunted for the rest of my <laughs> life if I do such a thing. So throw a dart in the book. <laughs> the one you hit is the play that's filling me up this month. Uh, and that's it. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Thank you.